Representative Schoener grabbed the ministerial armchair and brandished it against the chaps, who were even more fiercely on the attack. German clerical representative Hagenhofer grabbed him by the throat so that Schoener staggered backwards, but he quickly struggled back to his feet and started beating on Hagenhofer with his fist. Count Feta, who was standing by the president's seat, grabbed a glass of water and poured it into the crowd. Welcome to Totally Unrelated, a place for history, trivia, media, brain farts and the occasional venting session. My name is Diana and for this episode I'll be joined by another good pal of mine by the name of Bogdan. Say hi to the good people, Bogdan. Hi to the good people. <laughs> now, during the episodes I did with Irina about the nerds who were essentially doing fascist world building, I've mentioned that Guido von Liszt and Lanz von Liebenfels were part of an initial pre-political wave of the burgeoning fascist movement. Uh, they were still, in many ways, uh, sad LARPers, a little bit too invested in their fantasy of knights and secret orders in order, in order to also be uh, effective political organizers. I'd like to dedicate another two episodes to discuss the representatives of uh, the next generation of scumbags, the one that bridged the gap between the idea guys of yesteryear and the man of action of the first half of the 20th century. While it would be inaccurate to say that these people were the first fascists or the first people with fascistic inclinations to enter politics, uh, they were on the forefront of using what we came to identify as the fascistic toolkit uh, and uh, in doing so building more or less successful political careers. As always, because there are more awful people in history than ours in a day, we're going to focus on two people and for the sake of continuity with our previous episodes, uh, we're going to stick to Austria-Hungary yet again. Uh, this episode will be discussing Georg Schönerer, uh, the leader of what would become the Pan-German party. And next we'll look at Karl Löger, beloved mayor of Vienna, who won hearts and minds by putting anti-Semitism smack dab in the middle of Austrian electoral politics. Uh, now, Bogdan, before we begin, care to tell the audience what you're up to? Uh, well, um... I'm a software developer, um, wore several hats throughout the industry, been in several places as well, all in the pursuit of my arch nemesis, the student loan debt. Um, <laughs> quite an interesting saga, unfortunately, very common. Uh, currently, right now, I've ended up in the least in the place I, I really quite didn't expect at all, uh, in Malta. Um, I didn't quite expect it because I'm usually a man of more colder climates. Northeastern Moldova is generally blessed by colonel um, Siberian wind during the winters. The, the chilly Russian winds. Mm, yes, yes, quite, quite, quite so. 
Nonetheless, it's actually quite an interesting experience. Uh, and as a matter of fact, I've... Um, uh, because I made a pact with the devil, so to say, for my loans that I ended up here um, working for an online poker company. I decided to, how should I say, wash my sins towards the community by um, actually joining the um, St. John's Rescue Corps here as a, as a rescue volunteer. I'm still a recruit. Um, basic training was suddenly interrupted by uh, this magnificent uh, moment called 2020. Um, <laughs> nonetheless, uh, we didn't just sit on our asses. We actually took part in food bank deliveries, helped the local community, people who were isolated, uh, poor general social cases that needed uh, help and food in, in these in these times. Uh, and thankfully, until the, from the past two months, we have actually managed to restart our uh, our training schedule. Um, and yeah, that's great. That's mm -hmm. basically, in a nutshell, what I'm doing. Okay, uh, but you know that I didn't invite you specifically for this episode for your goody two shoes uh, attitude recently. <laughs> but rather for uh, something in your past. Mm, yeah, uh, well, that is a Pandora's box, uh, which, of course, we should open, given, given our subject. Um, basically, I went through the entire spectrum, uh, political spectrum, so to say. Uh, I mean, you know, when you're little, you do, you have small, uh, you know, you have your typical diseases like smallpox and... In my case, it was also nationalism. Um, but of course, like any small child, you know, you gain immunity towards them. Because ideally, you do them at a young age. Um, and in my case, it was actually so funny that uh, my dad actually used to nickname me Hitler Jungen. Um, oh. <laughs> just so you get an idea of it. Um, now, I wasn't, how should I say, um, uh, a Hitler fan. I was your... Um, Typical run-of-the-mill um, Antonescu fan. Um, mm, mm -hmm. at, uh, so it's like a Romanian fascist movement uh, of the interwar period, so to speak. Exactly. The classical shtick with, uh, I have nothing against Jews, but, uh, you know, if he would have targeted only that particular minority and exterminated it, that would have been perfect. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Um, eventually I grew out of that phase um, until I still remember my, uh, my change. It was actually, um, I was broke down in tears once asking my father if there is such a thing as nationalism with a human face. Um, and of course, looking back in time now, this just sounds completely hilarious and, and absurd. But um, I... What did your father tell you? Uh, well, um, so just as an idea, my, my father is uh, your typical, well, typical middle-class intellectual market liberal guy. Um, thankfully, I had a lot of healthy debates with him, which is what grounded me into reality. Mm -hmm. um, now, he said something along the lines of uh, that there were a lot of excesses made in um, under noble ideas, ideals. Uh, and that um, at the same time, uh, there are, of course, people who 
well, do good things under different motivations, be they per, you know, religious or patriotic or whatever. But in the end, it's a double-edged sword um, that lends itself to abuse. Um, so it was basically an invitation to be to to think critically of uh, what you perceived as sort of political ideal. Uh, yes, and actually, the the final uh, the, the the last straw that broke the camel's back, so to say, was a summer camp, an English summer camp, where I actually got a chance to meet to meet. Uh, with an actual nationalist, and uh, <laughs> and that that put you off. Boy, that was an interesting experience. <laughs> it made me suddenly realize that all of my um, how should I say uh, bohemic, um, uh, folkish, <laughs> um, romantic folkish impressions of nationalism were just complete and utter bull. Um, because lo and behold, that guy who was in a group and whatnot and etc., uh, we went into some historical debates, and I argued the fact that uh, I, I put into question um, their Führer's um, um, military competence and, well, general competence, uh, mm-hmm. and he didn't quite like that at all. And I realized that the guy wasn't really seeing things critically at all. And this, you know, started a chain reaction in my head, wondering, okay, this guy is rapidly anti-Russian. I wasn't anti-Russian at all. I just, you know, mm-hmm. tried to understand the historical context. Uh, this guy was a, a big fan of Hitler, uh, uncritical fan of Hitler. And, you know, put the two and two together. And then I realized, wait, these guys aren't exactly what they seem to be or what they claim to be. Um, and some years later, when I was 13 or 14, I discovered the Karl Marx, and I ended up buying uh, Das Kapital from an old uh, bookseller, and boy, that was a, that was a life-changing experience. <laughs> mm-hmm. I see, I see. It's uh, all the... Carly Marx is still working his charm on the young and impressionable. Mm, well, it was, uh, <laughs> how should I say, um, after becoming disillusioned with nationalism, I, I went on this, I was already in, in a sort of a globalist uh, pattern. I was thinking, I was already thinking along the lines of Marx's um, historical materialism, in the sense that, well, okay, nationalism had its purpose in its context against uh, imperialism, fighting for self-determination of certain groups of people, but that was something in in the past. I was thinking that, okay, humanity progressed from smaller to bigger groups, from uh, hunter-gatherers to uh, you had the um, agricultural revolution, you had small settlements that turned into, into towns, these towns turned into policies, the policies gathered together into republics, federations, and so on and so forth. And now you we... basically wanted Star Trek communism. Mm, <laughs> yeah, full, fully automated luxury space gay communism, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it, it, it sort of 
to boil all of this down in a very simple phrase, I suppose, it's just for a system of ever increasing complexity, uh, it's only natural that you would need more cooperation in order to smooth things out, so to speak. Exactly. And in the end, you have uh, cooperation and collaboration increasing on larger and larger scales until you end up realizing that presuming that you're still in the same, um, how should I say, state of mind as I was back then with nationalism, that um, I owe a set of loyalty and responsibility towards a certain group. And I realized that in extremis, that group actually is the human race, that I Mm -hmm. own my allegiance and everything to humanity to further the cause of humanity and the human species. And... Well, if we are to follow the concept of Star Trek communism in the end, I realize that actually I don't even own my allegiance to humanity or the human race. I own my allegiance to the the whole concept of intelligent life and consciousness in this, well, mass void that's trying to kill us. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, well, with that uh, behind us, uh, let's uh, start, shall we? Um, in my research for this episode and the one on Löger, uh, I mainly relied on two books. Uh, one is Karl Schorske's uh, Von des Siecle Vienna, and the other is Brigitte Hamann's Hitler's Vienna. Uh, I'm just going to give you a broad context before we begin. Um, Europe in the na- 19th century was witnessing a dizzying range of changes from science and technology to politics and social movements. Uh, This is when the nation state and the fight for independence are a hot topic, as we discussed earlier. It's also the time when large swaths of the population find themselves displaced from their rural homes and flung into the new industrial melting pot of the city. Eventually, out of all this turmoil, you see several new forces emerging uh, to challenge existing power structures, uh, such as workers' parties and the suffragettes. Uh, But there were also people who felt that whatever power or prestige they might have had before industrialization was sort of slipping away. Instead of finding and uh, fighting for their place in the emerging world, their energies were focused on turning back the hands of time, uh, back to how things used to be, or, and this is more often than not the case, back to an imagined glorious past. At this point in our play enters Schönerer. Uh, And there are four points we're going to highlight about Georg Schönerer uh, in this episode. Uh, Firstly, he is a child of capitalism, but he will rage against capital, especially because in Austria-Hungary, capital is linked to Uh, you-know-who. He starts off his political life as a liberal, but soon finds that his uh, voice is much better represented in a more strident and nationalistic, anti-Semitic vein as an agitator. Uh, He is also a huge Bismarck fanboy, hating on Austria-Hungary's multi-ethnic empire and its ties with the Catholic Church. And in conclusion, even if Schoener never gained executive power and was mostly known for his fiery rhetoric, when push came to shove, he didn't hesitate to use the threat of violence to intimidate or 
actual physical violence to attack his opponents. Because, you know, uh, in the end, there's no such thing as a civil Nazi. So, in a way, you could say he was like, um, how should I say, low-budget um, mini-Addy? Um, well, definitely Addy <laughs> uh, did see him as a source of inspiration. And as we shall see from uh, the sources of the time describing uh, his uh, public appearance and his... Uh, 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 rhetorical style. Uh, he he was a fount of inspiration, but Adi was also very critical of the old man. So it's interesting. He was definitely a case study for uh, Hitler. Um, here's how Shorske describes our man: uh, a curious compound of gangster, philistine, and aristocrat. Schönerer conceived of himself as the militant knight redeemer of the German folk. He rejoiced in epithets redolent of chivalry, Knight George, or, after his estate in Lower Austria, the Knight of Rosenau. Uh, this, this would be quite an interesting thing, because the way he sees himself uh, is, is not just an aesthetic um, predilection. It also has a lot to do with how he identifies uh, his class position or his position within Austrian society and then his mission within that society. Um, Schoener was a newbie within the aristocracy. Uh, he had inherited his title from his father, who received it as a reward for his services as an engineer and railway administrator. Although his son would become one of the first promoters of anti-Semitism anti as a political tool, um, the father had strong ties not just with one, but both of Austria-Hungary's most influential Jewish banking dynasties, the Armstein and Eskeles, as well as the Rothschilds. And I'm going to use the German pronunciation here because Rothschild just sounds silly to me, because basically Rothschild is German for Red Shield, but also because we're talking about the sort of Austrian branch of the family. Wait, so you're telling me that the uh, Rothschilds are not actually called Rothschild because of, uh, you know, sacrificing babies and because rotting <laughs> children? Oh my god, that's... I can't believe that. That is a commonly held uh, uh, mistaken belief. Yeah. So uh, now, yeah. Matthäus Schönerer, the father, was in many ways the typical self-made man that you would expect. But he did make a few personal choices that raised eyebrows and probably influenced his son down the line in um, unexpected ways. Uh, firstly, uh, Daddy bought a country estate, which for someone like him, who was a middle-class parvenu, was kind of you know, gauche, uh, because the bourgeoisie whom he was a part of, you know, at least initially, uh, was supposed to be the aristocracy of the spirit and the way that they sort of saw themselves in opposition to the feudals or, you know, the landed gentry, the, la the landed aristocracy, the, the upper classes, was that uh, they dominated the cultural and scientific uh, milieus rather than 
uh, have estates and um, palaces and so on and so forth. Secondly, uh, Papa Schoener made uh, Georgie Boy <laughs> attend a technical school rather than the gymnasium, uh, which was a very popular choice at that time. And it was sort of like the place, it, it, it was, I guess, a bit like Eton or other fancy colleges in Britain where you would send your kid if your kid is, you know, the, 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 the child of someone who is someone. Um, he also secured an apprenticeship for his son with uh, Prince Schwarzenberg, who was a sort of aristocratic nerd about modern agriculture. Uh, so, in a way, uh, unable to fit in with either bourgeois sophisticates or the actual true blue aristocrats, old boy George became a kind of uh, frustrated pseudo-aristocrat. You know, which is a lovely starting point for his later transformation. Well, the pseudo-aristocracy and LARPing, I suppose, they kind of go hand in hand. Yeah, 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 definitely. And uh, it's it's very interesting because uh, no one likes to imagine themselves... Well, I mean, maybe there is some middle-class LARPing as well, in the sense that people who are definitely working class like to imagine themselves as being middle class, but that's probably a more recent thing uh, since, you know, we've become, we've been declared a classless society. But definitely at the mm. time, being bourgeois was, I mean, in, there, it, it's weird because in a way there was a certain... Um, they were in a way proud of being the middle class because the aristocracy was also perceived as decadent or corrupt uh, and the decrepit, power. yes. But also it was romanticized and, you know, they had the money and they had the hmm. glamour, I guess. Anywho. Well, like all good things that never existed, you have to fantasize about them. So, um, just like Karl Löger, the guy we're going to talk in another episode, Schöner had a knack for building up loyalty and trust with people by addressing some of their material needs. The man was not only active in organizing locally, but he also financed the establishment of 200 fire departments and 25 public libraries. He donated gymnastics equipment for the physical education of the rural youth and gave money to the sick and the poor. So he was into charity, I guess, and uh, there is something to be said about his ability to actually address the electorate he's supposed to represent. Uh, but, you know, in, at the end, this is kind of self-serving, again, because it serves to direct people's attention away from the fact that well, he, he is vastly more wealthy than everyone else around him and everyone else who works for him, of course. Um, and then concentrating people's uh, sort of frustrations on a scapegoat of his choosing also does the trick. <laughs> well, the social policies are... In, them, in and of themselves good things so obviously any manipulator out there would be more than interested in using them as tools for their agenda 
uh, Mussolini, po- I mean, even with the Nazi party, we have the entire, the entire Strassreich. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also um, later on, um, both communists, socialists, uh, fascists, and, and pretty much every new political party uh, builds up a network of uh, sort of a social, well, a social network, uh, a social safety net of a sorts, which also acts as a sort of recruitment platform, like they would have, for instance, uh, party-sponsored cafes where you could not just buy food and, uh, for instance, coffee or tea on the cheap. Uh, you would also be able to read at your ease and pleasure any newspapers and uh, party-approved uh, journals and magazines. Uh, you would also get uh, training, not just like ideological training, but uh, first maybe, you know, maybe uh, some crafts or, you know, something that would be actually useful or needed by you. You would get shelter, you would get uh, to socialize with people, you know, you would be, you would feel included. And then within that sort of network and having offered those services to people who were really just left out to dry, uh, left out to hang by society as a whole, uh, you would just build up loyalty within that base, of course. Slowly start radicalizing them towards yeah, the yeah, sure, or or just you know turning them into your into your voters basically, uh, because we're at the cusp of actually having universal suffrage. Uh, we uh, at the turn of the century, I think, for most uh, countries, certainly for Austria-Hungary, you still have uh, uh, voting is still linked to owning property and to paying an actual sort of poll tax to be able to cast your vote. So obviously, the electoral base is uh, much more diminished than uh, at the beginning of the twentieth century. Would say capitalism was a bit more sincere back then because they they told it in your face only those that own capital actually matter in the vote. <laughs> well, I I mean basically we've been working towards that again since the Second World War. <laughs> I think it's fair to say only probably in a more uh, covert way possibly. So. Schoener make his, makes his political debut in 1873, following a stock exchange crash that resulted in a severe economic crisis at the time. So uh, basically what happens is that you have a series of unfortunate events, <laughs> which leads to a decade-long uh, recession. And it was actually called the Great Depression before the, you know, the next Great Depression. <laughs> Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So you had things like uh, people just getting absolutely crazy about investment in uh, the railroads, which were, you know, being built around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you had a very, a much too exuberant uh, market uh, following the, the establishment of the new German state after the Franco-Prussian War. And then uh, you also had uh, countries switching to the gold standard and renouncing uh, silver coinage, which also led to like a fuck up in the 
for in the sort of silver mining industry. So, you know, a series of unfortunate events that led to a recession. Uh, and, you know, to compound all of that fuckery, <laughs> um, Austria in the late 19th century was um, harvesting the fruits of uh, a few bad years again. Uh, it was one of the... Uh, European empires that was probably the latest at the whole, the, the latest comer, the late comer uh, at the, the whole industrialization game. And also since it was an eminently European and continental empire, it didn't have colonies, so it couldn't draw upon the same amount of resources to uh, supercharge its uh, development. Uh, and also, uh, the middle class within that empire, uh, which was also multi-ethnic in, in an age of nationalism, uh, they didn't get a place at the table until fairly late in the game. So their, their dominance uh, in the later half of the 19th century of uh, Austrian politics was very fragile, so to speak. So anywho, that's uh, the general context in which uh, Schöner is voted into the Austro-Hungarian parliament called the Reichsrat. Uh, and he begins his life as a liberal politician. Uh, but it doesn't take long for him to butt heads with his uh, colleagues. Uh, upon his uh, departure in 1876, he will become an increasingly more um, nationalistic politician. Uh, interesting to note that both Schönerer and uh, Karl Löger uh, began their public lives as liberals because uh, they not only broke away from their party but made a career out of uh, attacking and undermining liberalism as much as possible. So, you know, one has to ask at some point, why does everyone hate the liberals so much? Oh, well, maybe because they don't exactly fight back as much as they should. <laughs> they're not they're not that, that good with the fisticuffs is what you're saying uh, yeah i suppose you know they're they're they, they should probably work more on um uh on looking more threatening to morons so what you're saying is that, that they should uh go to the gym more mm, <laughs> well Mansana and Corporasana. Yeah, but well, you know, actually, we're we're joking, but apparently the experts think that we're onto something, <laughs> uh, because <laughs> yeah. So because uh, Shursky sums up the distinction between the politics of the liberal establishment and the emerging uh, more radical parties as such. Uh, one of the remarkable things about liberalism is that. Unlike the way feudals had projected their power through the display of blunt military might, liberalism has endeavored to hide the bare edifice of power, the struggle to acquire it and the efforts to hold on to it. Instead, it has sort of obfuscated this rather raw, at times even vulgar activity by worshipping decorum, procedures and civility as a way to exercise personal restraint in the public sphere. Trust in the system. Uh, yeah, yeah. The thing is, with the new political parties that were emerging, uh, who were um, a lot less uh, polite about 
trump- trumpeting their message. The attraction was not just that they they actually catered or addressed uh, needs of an expanding uh, electorate, uh, but they also tore the veil, the pretense of po- of, of politics as this airy Olympian activity of few wonks or patriarchs, because. What they did, they they sort of lifted the skirt of politics and just slapped that ass. (laughs) Um, Well, I'm sure that's that's an image that uh, anyone, regardless of social strata, can uh, can picture. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and getting back to what I said about liberals sort of hiding uh, the the mechanism of power... um, I, I, I'd like to sort of go off on a tangent for a moment uh, because you might ask yourself, you know, why on, war, why on earth would anyone seek to place any restraint on the way they project their power? Because, you know, if you got it, flaunt it. Uh, but there are benefits to making people use their own hands to punch themselves in the face instead of uh, doing all the punching yourself and bruising your knuckles in the process. Um, and I, I would say what, that we, we get a picture of the benefits of doing so from personal examples or from, you know, from, from individual examples of toxic relationships, for instance, where quite a lot of the damage inflicted by the abuser is not direct, uh, but rather relies on the victim internalizing the abuse and constantly questioning their judgment and morality and self-worth. And uh, yeah, because then the abuser has to only uh, push the right buttons to uh, trigger a reaction that will uh, inflict damage. Uh, Cynically speaking, it's um, basically a matter of um, optimizing a a process, a process of uh, maintaining power through violence. But, you know, you're masking that violence. You're uh, making it in such a way that you expend less and less resources in doing this. Therefore, you expend less and less resources in maintaining that structure of power. Mm. Because in a way, the system just sorts itself out. Well, I, I think it's, it's, it's sort of like the method of someone who is quite confident in their ability to hold on to power, right? Because uh, you, you hide the whole mechanism because you don't want to invite any envy but also because you're confident enough in your ability to lull your opposition mm-hmm. with this code, this very intricate code of conduct mm-hmm. that you impose upon them uh, in the public sphere, you know. So if you don't play by the rules, then we, we can sort of dismiss you that, you know, you're not, you're not a respectable player. Exactly. You can you can use this uh, meta narrative to basically pu- create a separate um, how should I say battlefield, in which you can you can have adversaries punch themselves uh, for for your gain, while at the same time the actual rules of the game are well beneath this visible mm-hmm. facade. Yeah. Plus, it's also useful probably with uh, with recruiting useful idiots that will basically support you on the merits of those uh, nebulous ideas which aren't completely grounded in reality. Yeah. Okay, so, you know, ending this tangent um, and getting back to our main uh, story. Bogdan, 
Would you be surprised to learn that Schöner, in Schöner we find the picture of the Schandgruppe? Hmm. <laughs> well, gee, what an interesting situation. Uh, I would be even more surprised if uh, I were to find out uh, what uh, he was a, um, a failed artist, perhaps. Uh, or he had some sort of sensibility and they laughed at him in, in school or, and then he just told them, you know, one of these days I'll be big enough and I will crush all of you. You just you wait, just you'll see. Well, we, we for once, we don't know anything about him actually being a man of any talent <laughs> besides uh, <laughs> besides being a gifted public speaker, I guess. Uh, but Georg was really, 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 really thirsty for Bismarck uh, because he worshipped the man that unified Germany and um, whom he hoped would also uh, bring uh, the Habsburg Empire's German regions into the fold as well. Uh, but the fact is, Bismarck had no patience for such flights of fancy. He was a very practical and pragmatic man. And he let his number one fanboy know that he was kind of in the way. But, you know, like uh, any self-respecting groupie, Schoenerer uh, just kept on keeping. <laughs> and he dotted his estates uh, with everything from... Uh, signs for taverns and inns, granite towers, oak trees, everything bearing the name of the German Chancellor. His daddy, basically. His, his daddy of choice. <laughs> mm, um, yeah. Yeah, now he's... It reminds me yeah. of, uh, of that uh, pollen ball uh, joke with um, uh, Dr. Osterreich. Um, uh, the catchphrase, uh, problem with Papa on pens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so his uh, intense admiration for Bismarck and the newly established German state uh, leads him to make statements that will prove quite unpopular with the Austrian mainstream. Because he argued that the people's law superseded federal law. And he thought that German nationalists within Austria-Hungary should have a little regard for the interest of the multi-ethnic empire, which was a kind of a hindrance, in his view, to uh, the whole unification project of the Germans. He also opposed the empire's military intervention abroad in uh, places such as Bosnia and Herzegovina uh, in 1878. But... You know, to no to nobody's surprise, it was not out of some sort of uh, principled pacifism or an abundance of uh, empathy for the victims of war. Uh, his contention was that the various nationalities that made up the empire were a drain on its resources. You know, because only the Germans were productive and they do all the work, the best work, and look totally fabulous wearing leather while, while doing yeah, it. Of course, because obviously in, uh, in, uh, in an empire spanning several uh, ethnicities and peoples and it's, it's just, you know, those, uh, what, uh, that, that gang of five people who were specifically born in a specific location with specific, uh, well, 
random, totally random, but very specific at the same time, the traits that obviously do everything else. Just the entire thing would, would otherwise collapse without them. It's, I mean, it's it's obvious. It's, it's, it's just science. Yeah, Bogdan, but yeah, like... Educate yourself. Put yourself in the poor poor people, poor nationalists, German nationalists' shoes for a moment and think about, you know, how they felt. I mean, you, you go on for centuries and you co- conquer these savages and, you know, use whatever resources they have to benefit yourself and build yourself a nice little empire. Uh, and then uh, you have to expand so much energy to, I don't know, bring electricity and public transport to these, you know, like I said, savages, you know, with money yeah. paid for I mean, by, I mean, yeah, it's their gold and their resources, but it, it's, it's, you know, it, it, it suits us much better because we know what to do with it, right? We know how to put it to good use. I mean, yeah, it's obvious. They they should be grateful, you know, for the fact that we're 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 giving them. I mean, we they are giving them the opportunity. Yeah, unfortunately, I'm not a member of the of the um, uh, master race. So, um, uh, but uh, you know, we should be grateful for the fact that we are allowed to be in their presence. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, just breathing the same air that they exhale. It's isn't it amazing? It just you know, it feels so great. You 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 can I mean, you gosh. can almost feel like the work ethic is rubbing off. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, especially after twelve hours in a, in, in a factory, and especially if you're ten years old working in a textile factory. Yeah, mm. it definitely rubs on you. Okay. So um, while these ideas uh, might have rendered him an outcast within liberal circles, uh, he drew ever larger crowds from the ranks of those that uh, felt snubbed by the powers that be. Um, Some of them were like the small artisans that he had gained uh, political capital from back in Valvirtel. You know, the guys he bought gym equipment for. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Some were fresh new faces within Austrian intelligentsia, however, like Viktor Adler and Karl Löger, uh, who will strike out on his own later. Uh, By the 1880s, alongside his newly found brothers-in-arms, Schoenerer co-creates the Linz program. Uh, which is a strange but also very fitting hodgepodge of ideas, uh, including a surprising push for universal suffrage, along with a less surprising caveat that it should only be granted in a future Austrian state that would have a clear German majority. <laughs> All men are equal, except some, except some which are German are more equal than the others, and only they have the right to vote. But otherwise, it's universal. All puppies are cute, but the ones on the toilet pa- in the toilet paper ads are the fluffiest. Definitely can't argue <laughs> that science. Um, okay, so initially, Schöner focused his ire on the Russian Jews uh, who were fe- fleeing the pro- pogroms. He urged Parliament to severely restrict immigration, but was not successful uh, initially. He identified the grievances of the artisan class he was supposed to fight for as originating in the Jewish capitalist, industrialist, and door-to-door salesman. So, you know, he, he went for 
both the both big capital and uh, a very sort of familiar face that people could see because you know sometimes rich people because they are so removed from you know most of society they can seem sort of that yeah abstract evil so he also went went for something that was very much part of um uh the austrians uh, day-to-day uh life here's a quote from uh, haman's book in its support for the home industries and honest labor uh, a compulsory training certificate for artisans and prohibitions of house-to-house peddling the po- program took account of the grievances of the anti-semitic viennese artisan associations They were the survivors of an earlier economic era, now hard-pressed by the advent of the factory, the retail store and the Jewish peddler, who sold factory products to the former customers of the stationary artisan. So, you know, like I said previously, you had this kind of late um, industrialization, which caught many... Uh, small, well, small business owners, <laughs> uh, uh, which caught a sort of a, a class of artisans and former uh, guild members unprepared for the new environment. And of course, because there was no sort of social safety net or anything that could, uh, you know, teach them to code, uh, <laughs> they, they just found themselves... Uh, uh, they found their status greatly diminished. Yeah, you know, just close your, your workshop, uh, your family-owned workshop, uh, leave your entire family to, to starve and, you know, learn how to hammer nails in a factory. It's... I mean, it's definitely an upgrade, right? Mm. Not. <laughs> uh, but at least the songs uh, you sing with the boys of the uh, the communist club are, are, are nice. Oh. <laughs> they are catchy. Oh, that, that's, that's definitely I... true. Yeah, yeah. Um, during during this decade, uh, Schoenner begins incorporating his fight against the Jews into his larger political outlook. Uh, since uh, many successful ideo- uh, ideology rests upon a strong narrative structure, uh, you need a villain for your story to, you know, really capture your audience. And um, ultimately, one hopes that if the positive goal of building a vision for the future won't mobilize the people, uh, perhaps resentment and the ability to take uh, any frustration out on a scapegoat of your choice uh, will. Now, it has been said that one of the main features of 20th century fascism was its ability to capture and divert the anger and energy that was uh, building up in the streets uh, among those who felt disenfranchised. Uh, but divert it how? Um, well, you know, downward and sideways. Just anything but upwards in the direction of <laughs> the actual people who are in power. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that, in a way, fascists were offering a service to sad people in power. Uh, basically, they monetized misdirection. Uh, and the rich gladly injected money into the endeavor because oh lord anything but socialism or giving poor people you know some help 
Uh, you know, as long as the rubble ends up being punched into submission, not us. That's that's perfectly fine. You know, just just keep the trains running. On yeah, time. yeah. Schneider, however, was part of an earlier time. Um, so it was a time when this uh, alliance between the emerging fascist movements and those in power was not yet explicit. Uh, basically, the rich had not been pitched the the many wonderful uses uh, of a fascist government uh, would have for their businesses, you know. Um, in fact, in those early days, many of the fringes of the right kind of mimicked elements of the left's language, uh, partially because, uh, you know, the issues that uh, the lefties were talking about were real issues, you know, they were popular with the electorate. Uh, but also, you know, imitation is a useful learning tool. To illustrate this point, uh, here's how he framed the struggle he was leading. And uh, you will see how it's a just wonder wonderfully whimsical bastardization of something familiar. Uh, his was a mission to unite the interests of the landed property, and he doesn't uh, mean by that uh, the bourgeois capitalist, but the aristocracy, and uh, of the productive hands, aka the workers. Well, probably the artisans more so, but the workers. Against the privileged interests of mobile capital and the Semitic rule of money and the press. So, it's um, a picture very reminiscent, at least for me, of uh, that last scene in the 1920s Metropolis movie, you know, with the workers and the millionaire basically shaking hands and i don't know oh, yeah. it's a thesis a thesis it... synthesis <laughs> it's just yeah italian corporatism before its time and also in a funny twist of faith biden's new electoral program isn't his uh, electoral program that he's going to be the avengers of politics is going to assemble a sort of oh. Avengers theme team of politics. Mm, well, <laughs> I suppose if you put uh, what the, uh, the 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 villains and the heroes working together. Well, it, th th don't, don't know how that's going to it's work. It's called but... bipartisanship. Oh yeah, yeah, right. Um, uh, teach both sides. Teach yes, the controversy. Yes. Uh, uh, put the uh, climate deniers working together with the um, climate activists. Yeah. yeah. That, that sounds like a good idea. Exactly yeah, I mean... <laughs> um, okay, so this, uh, this sort of weird picture that... Uh, I've just uh, painted to painted for you was uh, both uh, self-serving because technically speaking he was a member of the landed aristocracy uh, but also very revealing of the man's daddy issues uh, because um, <laughs> you know as you said papa and the uh, penis uh, his dad had been a capitalist uh, although yeah maybe more of a professional managerial class type 
rather than you know a factory owner or something like that but uh he was uh, rebelling against daddy uh even though at the end of the day it was the old man's money that enabled uh Georg to larp as an aristocrat uh coming to the rescue of the artisans and farmers you know uh it was through this new thing called capitalism within Austro-Hungary that he got to the place he was in to, you know, do his shtick. If, if, I, if I may interject here, I'm looking over the, the quote um, calling um, mobile capital um, Semitic rule of money and the press. And at the same time, as you said, his daddy issues. Now I'm starting to wonder, basically, is this his passive-aggressive way of calling his daddy a Jew? And obviously in his mind, and this being some sort of a capital insult towards his dad? Well, I think, I, you know, it's uh, really hard to get into family matters, especially looking backwards uh, in time. But uh, I think it's safe to say that whatever um, resentment he had against the old man, he was really careful in expressing the full uh, range of it while uh, Mateus Schönerer was alive. And he actually showed his true colors once uh, his father died. Okay, once his inheritance money was in his pocket safely. Yeah, I mean, I don't think he would have been disinherited, uh, but it was... It would have been a bit on the nose, so to speak, because... Uh, I guess he, because of his uh, professional choices, so to speak, uh, he wasn't uh, moving around in the same circles as his father, who, uh, you know, had had, di- had both the confidence and the, probably the friendship and the admiration of the people he, uh, Schoenerer was uh, raging against. Uh, uh, and, and, and Schoener distanced himself by basically <laughs> becoming the, the, the guy with the, with the estate. Uh, but at the end of the day, he wasn't uh, blue-blooded. So, and, and, and this was a very recent thing in his life. So he couldn't just be like, oh, well, you know, I've, we're, we're just this uh, noble family. And uh, I've never... Uh, soiled my beautiful hands with anything uh, so mm-hmm. vulgar as commerce uh, and I've never taken yeah. you know the Jews uh, money uh, he, he couldn't mm-hmm. you know honestly say that uh, and so I think he kept uh, his most virulent criticism uh, for when his father was actually deceased so you know a coward Nazi is not a coward fascist is not really news, is it? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Uh, I, I, I might dare say that they're kind of synonymous. To be honest. Yeah. Well, anywho, um, a few years uh, later, uh, he introduced the Aryan clause to the Linz program that we've mentioned before. Um, whereby he separated himself from a number of his former colleagues uh, who were either baptized Jews or had uh, Jewish ancestry. 
the trend caught on in various uh, fraternities and clubs uh, that were sympathetic to German nationalists. Um, Schoener not only argued that no exceptions were to be made for even a German nationalist Jew is still a Jew, but then ramped up the crazy even more by denouncing any nationalist who would pal around with Jews as a traitor and a renegade. He roused his followers to prepare for a big battle, claiming that if we don't expel the Jews, the Germans will be expelled. So, you know, some um, serious white replacement <laughs> vibes there. They will not replace us. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was the original Jews will not replace us. Hanan um, mm. writes in her book, uh, Schoenerer turned Germandom into a matter of faith and a kind of religion. He argued that the folkdom of those who are German from the bottom of their beings was a perfect substitute for religion, a strong call for morality. The Schoenerians had their own symbols and signs of recognition. The cornflower, runes, the Heil greeting and German battle songs. They celebrated summer and winter solstices and observed the Ostara holiday. Ostara was a Germanic goddess. And uh, like any self-respecting reactionary group, the Schoenerians, of course, uh, rejected contemporary art, uh, deeming it degenerate, cosmopolitan and Jewish. Uh, yeah, but um, there are many other things that uh, make uh, the Schoenerians sound like brothers from another mother. <laughs> Uh, with the present-day far-right groups. Um, for once, they uh, exerted strict control over the, their followers' families and social circles, urging them to eliminate any Jews or Slavs from their ranks. They were big fans of abstinence and no fap, while also keen on hitting the gym, um, and also very concerned about the virtue of their ladies, of course and practically anal about the health and reproductive vigor of their followers. Well, didn't you just say that um, Germanness comes from the bottom? Oh, yes. <laughs> it just makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's only the top. You, you, you lead from the bottom. <laughs> you... <laughs> of course, only the best comes from the bottom. <laughs> Um, oh, and by the way, uh, least we forget that for all their debonair facade, the Austrians are still Germans. They um, applied the aforementioned rules uh, in clubs called things like the German Students Association for Folkish Efficiency. <laughs> Which is just, I, I love it. It's it's wonderful. <laughs> folkish efficiency. I mean, if you if you're going to do folkish, you need to make it efficient, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you know, I'm 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 actually starting to wonder how did they come up with this? Were they literally? I mean, they didn't have Google back then, but I'm I'm just picturing someone going through libraries searching for okay what's the most german phrase you've ever heard what's the most german thing you can think of hmm, um, efficiency oh yeah okay that's good good it has to have german in it obviously because it's german and um oh and folkish 
Yeah, definitely. I I mean you have to you have to be on brand <laughs> as soon as you develop it, right? White man got a white man. Yeah. Uh, so let's see. Um, what else do we need for a party right wing dish? Um, I guess uh, where there are extremists, uh, grifters are um, kind of within the earshot. Uh, and there is nothing quite like uh, selling merch to both uh, line your pockets, build group solidarity around shared possessions, as well as uh, fund your movement. So here are some of the things in the Schoenerian merch store. There were canes with Eastern Jews' heads as knobs, cheap stickers with anti-Semitic slogans, Jew biter cigarette tips with pictures of Schoenerer for 20 kreuzers for members, but sold for 25 kreuzers for Jews, Jews' lackeys and dirty swine. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> they would sell their stuff to anyone, including Jews, but for a premium. <laughs> Good evening, my dear sir. Might I interest you in some um, uh, Eastern Jewish uh, head knob? Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, very spe- it's a very, very special kind of Jewish head knob, mind you. Um, but um, before I can sell it to you, I must have to ask you, uh, please. Uh, it's very important, you know, for our, um, our, our pricing. Uh, standards. Um, are you a dirty swine, perhaps, or maybe a Jew lackey, or are you Jew? It's it's, it's very important, you know. We we have to respect the. Uh, there's different uh, uh, VAT applied on on, on the price. You, so. you you could also you could almost see like the Schoenerian senses uh, just gearing up to crunch the numbers. You know when their sellers would. Uh, uh, report back, right? <laughs> um, now, Bogdan, would you be surprised to learn that Schoenerer, our dear boy George, played the freedom of speech card, <laughs> coupled with a not-so-subtle threat of violence uh, if his uh, ability to spew bigotry would be curtailed in any way? Hmm, what, 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 what interesting, wow, that, that's, no, I, I couldn't believe it. Su- such, such an interesting yeah. twist to the story. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, very, uh, how should I say, almost 21st century alt-right. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, um, apparently in uh, 1886, a certain Dr. Ernst von Plena leader of the Liberal Party at the time, questioned the Speaker of the Reichsrat on the adequacy of anti-Semitic, in- anti-Semitic invectives being hurled around the nation's uh, uh, parliament. Well, the Empire's parliament. <laughs> uh, he also proposed that if his nationalist colleagues wish to continue their rhetorical exercises, they take the form of actual proposals so that they could be judged on their own merits and presumably dismissed and taken out of the way. Uh, Schoenerer reacted, uh, as you might expect. If the president of the house should follow the suggestion of Plener to curb freedom of discussion on the Jewish question, then the question could not be brought nearer to solutions for proposals made and words spoken in Parliament, 
And in that case, the fists will have to go into action outside Parliament. Hmm. Yes. So sounds like your typical uh, liberal conservative discussion. Um, could you please uh, bring your arguments for this debate? Mm, would you like me to bring my fists to your to your debate? Yeah. So you know he was a gutsy speaker, as we could uh, see. But uh, what about his field game? I think it's safe to say that we all uh, love a good parliamentary brawl and. Um, our absolute boy George will not leave us wanting. <laughs> Here's an uh, action scene vividly captured by a reporter at the time. In view of the German representative's predicament, Representative Schoener grabbed a ministerial armchair and brandished it against the Czechs, who were even more fiercely on the attack. They tore the heavy chair out of his hands twice, but Schoener got hold of it a third time. Thereupon, German clerical representative Hagenhofer grabbed him by the throat so that Schoener staggered backwards, but he quickly struggled back to his feet and started beating on Hagenhofer with his fist. Count Feta, who was standing by the president's seat, grabbed a glass of water and poured it into the crowd. Well, this is a very, um, how should I say, um, Austro-Hungarian interpretation on the concept of separations of power in the state. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I have to say that the, the whole research and, uh, and the whole uh, script for this uh, episode was leading up to this moment. I think that this is the, the icing on the cake. Uh, you know, from, from here on out, it's just a downward spiral. I'm sorry, this was the funniest bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they should have. Uh, uh, yeah, they they didn't have radios back then. It would have been interesting to have like a sports commentator actually live transmitting this. And here in the corner of the Reichsrat, we have the German Chancellor. And he, uh, Chancellor, oh, man, sorry, uh, we have the German. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, okay, that that was his um, uh, his uh, he, the German Chancellor was in spirit there for his. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. He was the patron saint. Uh, exactly, uh, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But actually, actually, I guess the the what the newspapers were reporting on was the next best thing to a sports commentary, and uh, uh, you know, you're not very far off again. Uh, about how many Viennese also thought about what was going on in their parliament. Because apparently, again, this is uh, from uh, Hamann's book, she says that uh, at the time, by the time Hitler, uh, as a young man, uh, came to Vienna, it was kind of a, the parliament became a sort of... A, attraction for tourists or a curiosity more more so uh, they people would just go and watch the utter mayhem that was the proceedings of the parliament of the austrian parliament uh, like they would go to i don't know a freak show or just some sort of you know as i said a sort of street brawl so yeah, yeah. but it's in an organized fashion because you know we're a civilized society our brawls are organized. Well, I, 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 think, I think the Austrians uh, are more um, uh, freeform about these sort of things. 
<laughs> or at least that's how they sell themselves. Well, I can probably see the um, the artistic spirit um, taking um, taking shape and form of fists in this case. <laughs> um. No, as you can imagine, um, a polarizing figure like Schoener had a um, tumultuous relationship with the press. Uh, first they attacked and sort of ridiculed him. Um, they said things like, um, physically, Schoener is short and stocky. And his fat red beer face with its fat eyes does not leave a pleasant impression. Yet when the man speaks, he looks different. Then those otherwise wary eyes begin to glow. His hands start moving and his features become very lively while the words reverberate from his lips throughout the room. He accentuates carefully what he wants to come across to his audience. But after a while, the press um, began ignoring him and... Uh, Schoener, in turn, uh, settled into a routine of calling them vampires and other such suction-reliant pests, uh, feasting of the German folk's vital juices. <laughs> um, things reached a fever pitch, however, in, in 1888, uh, when he and a merry band of followers burst into the offices of the Neues Wiener Tagblatt, and attacked some of the editors with clubs uh, because they had announced the death of the 91-year-old Emperor William a few hours too soon. <laughs> um, up until now, Schoener had built his reputation on um, verbal aggression, but this time things got a bit too real, and they got real with the wrong kind of crowd. Uh, because one of the injured parties was friends with the crown prince and a subsequent trial led to a brief prison sentence but also most importantly for a um, politician to a suspension of political rights for five years uh, this effectively rendered him irrelevant on the Austro-Hungarian political scene. And on top of all that, he was also stripped of his title. So that probably hurt. Um, however, the event also galvanized public support for Schoener and his uh, virulent anti-Semitism. Virulent? Virulent? Virulent. Ah, never mind. Um, he was hailed as both a hero and a martyr, and uh, there were crowds in the street of Vienna, shouting both their support for the man of the moment, as well as their threats against the House of Habsburg, that had taken the side of the Jewish cabal in such a public manner. Now, although I said his uh, political career after he came back from his sentence was largely irrelevant, I'll mention a few things, because his mistakes were seen as an important lesson by none other than Adi Hitler. I mentioned the in close before, but what really buried Schoener's popularity was his away from Rome movement following his comeback. Mm. Now, uh, what this was, was a sort of an attempt to convince Austrian Germans to convert to Protestantism, and uh, uh, which also did himself in 1900. In, in 1900, 
but not as a result of some sort of personal epiphany, um, but rather a step towards his old <laughs> wet dream of uniting the Austrian Germans with their brothers in, you know, German Germany, uh, who were Protestants, as opposed to Austrian Germans who were mainly Catholic. And um, again, he had no qualms about undermining the legitimacy of the House of Habsburg in order to accomplish this. Uh, he even stated that away from Rome and away from Austria, Schoener didn't only advocate for conversion, but also waged an aggressive campaign, uh, reporting on sexual misdemeanors of Catholic priests, priests and monks and... Uh, you know, as a former Catholic myself, I can't imagine what evidence he could have brought against those virtuous souls. I mean... Yeah, but Catholic priests and, and, and sexual uh, misconduct, you know, who, who could imagine that? It's... He, he did a QAnon before QAnon. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, it, it speaks volumes about you as an institution when even the, uh, basically, the embryos of Nazism criticize you for being, for sexual demeanors. <laughs> I mean, that's a low bar. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's fine, they worked it out in the end, you know, during the Second World War. Yeah. Um, and I, Pretty much. And I suppose the church is living happily ever onwards. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, um, you know, our boy George, he didn't stop there. He basically called Jesus a filthy Jew. <laughs> Shots fired. <laughs> because, yeah, as the son of a Jewess and a, a descendant of David, he could not possibly be an Aryan. Mm. So, you know, you, you, you can imagine that this didn't really sit well with the Austrian public. And uh, actually, Hitler later criticized Schoener's inability to understand the masses, what the second generation of fascist politicians understood was that it's just smarter to get the legitimacy and logistics and PR of the church behind you. Uh, rather than singling them out as a target. Plus, it's super bad to have a scapegoat that is basically an age-old, large structure or institution that can actually put up a fight and uh, has uh, widespread support. So Yeah, you know, when you try to organize people against um, a, a fictitious uh, cabal of... Um of um, people under the same kind of uh, religion that are supposedly all over the world and are at all levels of society and doing bad things uh, to you, better not antagonize the actual millennial old or well, millennial centuries old organization uh, that's united under the same kind of religion and they're in all levels of society and doing bad things. Just saying. It's always good to pick your fights with uh, people you know you can beat. Hitler forget, yeah. forgot that about Stalin, I guess. Ooh, yeah. Well, uh, Napoleon before him, that's... Uh... Yeah, yeah. Some some basic lessons are, are never learned. Uh. Uh, okay, well, um, we're almost 
We're almost finished. Schoener's party, the Pan-Germans, which only got its name in 1902, uh, fractured into feuding cliques after he sort of uh, <laughs> became less relevant. Uh, and eventually, after the introduction of universal suffrage, the Pan-Germans' ranks in Parliament shrank to a mere three seats, so they became irrelevant. Uh, Scherer himself died in 1921, and ever the true blue flan boy, uh, he was buried near Bismarck's grave in Friedrichsruhe. And uh, yeah, that's it uh, for this episode. <laughs> Any uh, concluding thoughts? Uh, yeah, actually, I'm wondering, not that I, uh, I care that much for, for Daddy Bismarck, but um, one has to wonder, you know, the, 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 the last thing you, you just said. Would it be possible, I wonder, uh, to uh, get a restraining order from beyond the grave? Because... Technically speaking, what Schoner did there just sounds like, you know, some sort of uh, metaphysical harassment. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, sometimes you just slide into people people's DMs or if you have enough money uh, in, in the... their graves. <laughs> That, that's definitely taking it beyond, uh, uh, you know, uh, sleeping with a pillow of your, uh, of your crush on it. Uh, with, with, with a picture yeah. of it, yeah. I mean, you know, you said something about uh, the failed artist, but who knows how things would have panned out if maybe Bismarck would have given him more attention and not necessarily necessarily realized his uh, wet dream of a greater Germany, but sort of kept telling him that, yes, 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 we are working towards that. Maybe that would have directed his energies so in a different direction. But, you know, I think, uh, joking aside, uh, much as uh, I'd say that the whole issue of uh, what would have happened, how would history have unfolded if, uh, you know, someone would have killed, uh, a stray bullet would have killed Hitler during the First World War, if it wouldn't have been Schoener, or been someone else, <laughs> there would have been someone else because the 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 context was just so that you had many people who came to the same awful misguided conclusions about what was the cause of uh, their 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 problems. I mean, obviously, the, the, the society was very unequal. You had very stringent problems that just remained um, unaddressed by a political class that probably seemed uh, like many a times our politicians today, uh, just sort of uh, very occupied with court intrigues. I mean... <sighs> mm. Uh, this is going off on a tangent, but I think it's relevant. I was so disgusted recently when uh, I saw one of the electoral posters for one of the parties in Romania. And the slogan, you know, it wasn't something like... It wasn't even something as vague and airy as forwards Romania or vote for me for a better future or shit like that. It was basically 
in the rivalry between party X and party Y, vote for us as an alternative. So... And I was like, but like, what, what, I mean, okay, that's your like bickering and infighting, but like, what do I get out of it? Just like cheering for your team? Why? And it's so... Yeah, we're... Uh, disgusting, really. How uh, uh, it's, uh, comfortable they are with being so removed from any anything that would have uh, any value for for society, yeah, for well, the people they are supposed to represent. Like you said, that that uh, that, that court intrigue is, is so deeply ingrained in their minds that when when they came out with a the slogan, they, they couldn't even understand the idea that uh, you know the people they're they're trying to reach out to ad- address with this slogan actually they're not even involved in this game they don't even give two shits about it it's, mm-hmm. it's completely from a completely parallel universe it's yeah this this disconnect is uh, yeah it's um it's one of the main reasons, actually, why if you look on any single election result out there, you'll see, you know, that vast majority of people that, that don't vote. And it's always, you know, this, uh, you, you hear political pundits on, 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 on television and, and radio and whatnot to keep, you know, they just keep wondering, you know, sanctimoniously, hmm, what could we do to get the silent majority? What? To, to, to act to vote you know they, they, they talk about these people like like they're uh, like like they're, they're a lump of lobotomized morons that you know they just can't mm-hmm. comprehend the uh, the political intrigue that they have to be invested in it for whatever reason and they're like uh, hmm what is this uh, this this fabulous creature called the silent majority how can we get them to understand things you know yeah, no, it's it's just for show because they don't really care. I mean, they they don't have a problem fighting over an ever a decreasing chunk of the electorate. Uh, maybe the only ones who wish to somehow bring new people in are the newer parties who don't have a the same sort of established base that they can cater mm-hmm. to. But other than that, it's just you know, it's just. Discuss- discussion for the sake of discussion. Exactly, and uh, sp- speaking of new new actors on the scene, ex- exactly. Going back to um, our our boy uh, here, uh, you know uh, the <laughs> the entire donations and gyms and whatnot. It, 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 it's always this when there's a new when there's a new faction and there, there's a new party in town. They always try to. Uh, they realize that the. Um, well, because we're in capitalism, the electoral market is is cornered by the big parties, uh, and <laughs> they want to break in. How do they do it? Well, they don't go to the zealots who are taken already by the um, supposedly left wing party, which is actually not left wing at all, and the right wing party. Um, no, of course, because those are already radicalized and they're a minor- vocal minority and organized within rank and file. No, they go obviously to the to the working classes. You know, they 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 put that facade in front of them, trying to say that hey, I you know I'm 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 a small man like you, and in a way they are because they are at the beginning in their political beginnings. 
and they try to come up with social programs and whatnot and whatnot and, and nice beautiful ideals and, and such until of course they you know they get their foot through the door and end up in the circle of power where the big guys are and that moment they're like yeah okay fuck you guys i don't need you anymore <laughs> yeah pulling the ladder up from uh, behind you pretty much yeah okay well thank you very much for joining me for this episode uh and uh, looking forward to our next uh, discussion about uh, Karl Löger the mayor who uh, won Viennese hearts and minds uh, <laughs> by running for office uh, as an anti-semite uh, okay that's uh, that's it for today then bye thanks for having me